right, let's kind of pull the conversation back in together. I'm excited to see so many good versions of this question and answer happening. This is exciting to me. I kind of think of Sundays more as like a workshop than a lecture, and that's really what I hope that we come for. So some of these discussion groups are actually the workshopping of an idea, working it out, versus just the memorizing of an answer. Um, memorizing can be helpful. Sometimes in apologetics, this Christian uh, responses to questions like that. Apologetics is a study of and the preparation of good answers for hard questions. It can give you exactly the right thing you need in a conversation when someone asks a hard question, but also it can sometimes be too robotic. Like, oh, I've memorized the answer to that question. This person has a question, and they just repeat back the answer. And there's a lot of complicated things that happen in the world. Sometimes the pat answers don't just solve the problem or answer the question. Um, but in this particular one, I think it's good for us to get experience hearing how we all would answer that and talking about it here among a safe place of same faith. And then we go to work, or we go to the grocery store, wherever we're going to be, and then you get a question from someone who's just waiting for you to say the wrong thing. <laughs> You're like, what do I say? I don't... And that's harder. But we need to kind of work some of these things out. Anyway, so I don't know how you all answered it, but if there were a couple of things that I would want to throw your way to say these are ideas you could have, is the first is, this is not just the Christian's job to answer this question. An atheist also would have trouble explaining why there's evil in the world. Because evil is like a moral thing. <laughs> so like, I feel like you're able to just ask that question right back to whoever asked you also. They're like, oh, you're a Buddhist? Okay, well, why do you think there's evil in the world? Kind of we feel like, oh, we're Christians. We're supposed to have all the answers. God knows truth. And then we feel like weird or defeated if we don't have the right answer. But that's like, it's, it's a problem for every human, and evil is a terrible thing we all experience. So like, what's your answer to that? If life is meaningless, then why do we think there's such a thing as tragedy? You know, if you're a pure atheist, like, you shouldn't think that there's such a thing as tragedy, it's just chance. Sometimes that chance feels really bad. <laughs> well, why do you think that way? It's just, so it's a question you can just ask back. So that's one way you can respond. And the other way that I found helpful to respond to this is to break up evil into separate categories. Like there are people who just do evil things. But then there's also just suffering, like illness. And that's a different sort of thing. When someone commits a crime versus someone gets sick, I don't know that we should lump those into the same category. And then there's tragedy, which is sort of like there was a hurricane and a house fell down and someone died. Well, that's not the same thing as like a sickness in a fallen world. It's not the same thing as someone doing something. So... If you break them apart, you can answer them in different ways. Well, why are there evil people? Well, when you see people doing evil things, that's clearly not God, right? So why were you blaming him for their evil action? If there's suffering, it's like, well, the whole world is broken, so we can answer that. But again, God isn't breaking it. And is there tragedy? Yes. Well, some things happen seemingly just accidentally. But our life is short anyway, and so we don't know if we have a short time or a long time to live. But you wouldn't call a hurricane evil. You might not even call it suffering. You know, there's different words. So it gets lumped in, it gets confusing. If you were just to think about things in different categories, it might help you have a conversation with someone to think more deeply about it. So whatever you came up with, I wanted to make sure that I threw those thoughts out there for further consideration. But ultimately, what's on the wall back there is what I want to talk about and then read about. I don't think in the world the problem of evil is the biggest question. I actually think we have a problem with goodness. 
And here's why. I think everybody would admit that there's wrong in the world, and it comes from lots of different sources, right? War brings in evil, and sinful desires bring in evil, and um, parents and grandparents pass down traits and pass down attitudes, and um, societies teach, like there's lots of sources, like a million ways that evil could come about and bad things could come about. Isn't the bigger question, why do we have so much trouble doing the good thing. I mean, make lots of excuses for why we did the wrong thing. Okay, I did this thing that I shouldn't have while I was in this circumstance. And maybe if all of you were in that circumstance, you would have done the wrong thing too. Why was it so hard to do the right thing? Why, why is it so hard when we know how we're supposed to treat someone to actually just say it? Why do the words come out wrong? That's not a problem of evil. That's a problem of goodness. We like, can understand. We recognize the reality of bad things. But why is it so hard to be good? And when we try really hard, why do we fail if we really want to do the right thing? You know, people, we say, okay, people are, are generally good. Well, look at what people have acted like during COVID. Look at what like, they acted like with things like quarantine and lockdown. It's turned the good people nasty. <laughs> look at social media and all the heated political arguments. They're like, well, these are just, why is it so hard to just say the nice thing? I know why you'd be angry, because there are things to be angry about in society and in politics and in life. It's almost like it makes so much sense why there's problems, but why is it so hard to be good? And what if the real problem is not looking at the million and one things that are wrong with the world, but looking at the one way to be made good in the world? If there's a law, there's probably a million ways to break it, but there's one way to obey it. And so this is a statement I'm going to have you repeat it after me, and I want you to think about this wholeheartedly. So Christianity is ultimately an ethic of action, not avoidance. Christianity, being Christian, follower of Christ, is an ethic of action. It's what we do. It's how we live in the world. It's not an ethic of avoidance. Now, if we were to list all the sins that all of us have committed over the last just week, we'd be like, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that. But even if we were successful in not doing any one of those bad things this last week, it wouldn't mean that we did anything good last week. We merely went from bad to neutral. We didn't get from neutral to good. And when God comes in his glory, it is all good. It is overwhelming goodness. It is not just merely the absence of bad things. A Christian is not just someone who just doesn't do the bad stuff. A Christian is someone who overflows the good into the world. And that's why it's a challenge. It's not the problem. I can tell you all the reasons why I sin. That's like simple. Why is it so hard to be good? When I know Jesus and he's training me, I'm his apprentice and I still screw up and I still fall to temptation and I still talk the way I should and I still think, the why? Why is that so hard? <laughs> That's a real dilemma. And I would rather spend our lives asking that question versus hyper-focusing on all the very real reasons why we sin, the things inside us that still are being worked on, the things from outside that tempt us, the things that we're being deluded into thinking that aren't even true. People that are actually trying to manipulate us into sin. A society that does not want us to love God. There's plenty of reasons, right? But those don't actually help us get anywhere. So Christianity is ultimately an ethic of action, not avoidance. All right, so let's say that together. Christianity, Christianity. 
is ultimately an ethic of action, not avoidance. That was almost good. We're going to do it one more time. Christianity is ultimately an ethic of action, not avoidance. This will change our lives if we look at our faith this way. Because instead of the guilt cycle, I shouldn't have, I couldn't have, I wouldn't have, which even if we succeed in, just gets us to neutral. We've not yet experienced joy and lived in freedom and seen miracles. We just got out of the pit. That's not satisfying and hope-inspiring. But if we're living and seeing this route, there can even still be bad things that happen that somehow just fade in comparison to the glory that we're also experiencing. So we're not going to read the golden rule today. We're reading about Jesus who healed the man who was born blind. But as we head there, I want to remind us of the golden rule. Who knows it? Who can say it for us? Do unto others. Do unto others. As you would have them When we hear that in our modern day, it feels like a, like a boringly obvious statement. Okay, good, right? But in Jesus' day, every teacher taught it the opposite way. No one said it that way. What they all taught, the rabbis, you can look this up in ancient Jewish literature, they taught this phrase, do not do to others what you don't want them to do to you. That was the teaching of Jesus' day. You can look it up. It's quoted, written. So, you don't want someone to cheat you. Don't cheat them. Well, if both of you avoid cheating, you just still got to neutral. Nothing good actually happened. The ethic was one of the law. What is the law? Here are the things you're not supposed to do. The law is an ethic of avoidance. Here are the behaviors that you're supposed to do or not do. Did I or didn't I? Didn't. But if you obey them all, you just sort of get out of your own way a little bit. You don't live in the freedom or the power, or the, the transformation side of things that Jesus promises. So Jesus said, don't just avoid lying to your boss because you don't want him or her to lie to you. Do unto your boss exactly as you'd want them to do to you. It's an ethic of positive, living out the glory of God in a good way, goodness. And we try to do that. We realize it's so hard. That's, a, that's the problem. We know we're supposed to love our spouse, love our children, love our siblings. Why is it so hard to love them? Why do they drive us crazy? And why do we talk to them? Why is that so hard? You're married for years and years and years. You should have it all figured out, right? You know exactly how to love your spouse. You feel loved by them all the time. Like, how much practice do we need before we get it right? Well, evidently a lot. <laughs> There's like a problem because we don't have it figured out. We're not always good to one another. But Jesus makes us good. He's the solution. He makes us good. He doesn't just make us neutral. He doesn't just make us less bad. He makes us good. And that's what we're going to see in this passage here. The glory of God in the active goodness of Christ. So we're in the Gospel of John. I encourage you to read along with me. We're going to read chapter 9. And I'm going to read the whole thing. Maybe stop here and there just to highlight a couple of things. But this is the story of Jesus coming across a man who was born blind from birth. Hopefully it's a very familiar story. I think you, you have heard it before. We've probably preached it here. Um, and so at first blush... It is a miracle story. So let's not miss that. I'm going to highlight the role that miracles and sin, like why was this man born blind? Like what sin is causing the problems in his life? Problem of evil. It's that question that gets raised here. Um, but the basic reading is that Jesus saw a man 
and he couldn't see. He'd never been able to see, not for one second of his life. And Jesus went and made some mud and made him see. So it's a miracle. It's not a parable. It's not a fanciful story. It's a miracle. It's an event. And we know, as Sally brought up before, I was glad you made this point, if miracles happened here, they can happen here. Same God. Nothing, there's nothing in the Bible that ever says any of God's power has stopped. Nothing. You can't find it. it doesn't. So, if God made someone who was blind just, boom, be able to see, he can do that today. Please believe that. Like, let's not gloss past, oh, it's a miracle. Like, that's important. That's our worldview. When you see someone sick, pray for their healing. And believe. It's like, well, Jesus did this, so I could do this. I don't know if you need to spit on their eyes, but maybe, I don't know, Jesus did, so follow his example. The other thing we need to recognize is that this happened as Jesus was journeying along. He didn't wait for all the problems to come to him. And this is our like, desire as people on mission, to be out and about looking for the places where God can work. So again, it's just a little phrase, but don't miss it. Don't miss that Jesus didn't just sit in the, in the, the synagogue and be like, I'm here on Sundays from 10 to 2. Bring me a weary and you're sick and I'll take care of it. He's walking along and noticing and observing. And as we walk along, we observe things. Those are the moments where God wants to step in. You are there. You are that missionary. Jesus was on mission. So let's read it together and see what we can learn. As he passed by, Jesus saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. So they only had two categories in their mind. Very limited view. If something bad happens, it's because God is punishing you. That's their worldview. So it's God's either punishing this guy or punishing his parents. And Jesus says, your categories are too limited. Step back a little bit. Recognize God could be doing lots of things in this situation. So Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned. Or that his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This problem in the world actually exists so that God could show glory. So that God's goodness could show up. So I could do this miracle right now and God could get the credit for it. So this was suffering for this man. Yes, it was difficult. Yes, but actually was leading up to the greatest miracle in his life. And he needed to wait to see this day. This suffering, not evil, not as a result of sin. It's a bad thing that's happened, but it's actually something that God in his timing and patience is waiting to do one of the most amazing things. And we still read about him today, 2,000 years, this man's story. Verse 4. We, disciples, Christians, we must work the works of him who sent me. It's like, do what God gives you to do. While it is day, because night is coming when no one can work. Jesus said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So now having said these things, he spat on the ground, then he made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had, been, who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, it's he. Others said, no, he's just like him. But he kept saying, I am that man. I was like, no, really, this is me. I can see. Where are we here? 
I am that man. Verse 10. So they said to him, well, then how are your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud. He anointed my eyes and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. So they brought to the Pharisees this man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Now, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how could a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Now the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then now does he see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. Don't blame us. We don't want to get in the middle of this. Talk to that guy. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For if the Jews had already agreed, no, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So kicked out of the church, kicked out of local society. That therefore his parents had said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now that's so interesting. Give glory to God by saying that this man is a sinner. Instead of give glory to God, your sight was restored. God's already gotten glory, but in their mind, glorifying God will be denouncing Jesus as a sinner. What a bad definition of glory. Give glory to God. Call this man a sinner. Verse 25, he answered, well, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, though, is that I was blind and now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, whereas this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out, because they believed he was born blind because of sin. So who are you? Your own eyes are proof that you're sinful. We're not. Get out. So they cast him out of the synagogue. He is disassociated from his religion at that moment. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And then having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? It's the Messiah. And he answered, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you've seen him. It's he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. Remember before he said, Rabbi? No, he's a prophet. We just went from prophet to Lord, right? This is the salvation of this man, not just the healing of his body. He now has a soul that is healed and saved as well, right in this moment. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. 
Then Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world. Not condemnation. That word is tricky in English. Judgment just means like sifting, sorting, to like separate things to show what's what. That's to judge. Um, Condemnation is to say like bad, wrong, to throw out the bad things. He's not getting there yet. That's the second coming. He said, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see but that those who see may become blind. Well, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. So they were claiming to know, claiming to be righteous, and so making themselves basically guilty of lying, guilty of sin just by claiming that they weren't. So this is the story that we see here with Jesus and with this man. And it's interesting that even though it's a miracle story, the entire conversation is about sin. That's just really interesting. You and I figure that if we saw someone like raised from the dead or someone's arm grow back or a sight, we'd spend the next few minutes like chatting about that was pretty cool, right? We'd talk about that. But instead, as soon as the disciples see the illness, they talk about sin. Their answer, if they were in our discussion groups here, why is there evil in the world? It's because of sin. It's a consequence. It's always, ever, only a consequence. And they would quote God's own words. Do you remember Deuteronomy? I will punish the sins to, you know, the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, and I will bless the children to the thousandth generation of those who love me and obey my commands. So they're, they're right-ish. But in Ezekiel, the prophet who is calling people beyond just the don't do, just the avoid, the the prophet Ezekiel in the Jewish Bible, pointing forward to Christ says, in that day, a son will no longer suffer for the sins of his father. Will no longer be punished for the sins of it. So it's like this progression. God starts out with the people and says, Well, here's the right and wrong. You need to know that. And they're like, Well, it's really hard to keep the rights and the wrongs. And he's like, Yeah, because you need something more. You need the grace piece. You need my help. I'll send my son. And in that day, it's not just going to be about you did a sin and here's a punishment, and he did a sin and here's a punishment, your parents sin and here's your punishment. It's not that way. It's come to me and I will make you good. And here's the whole crux of it. The disciples' question is a trick question. Who was it that sinned? Was it the man or his parents? It's a trick question. It was both. It's everybody. Everybody sinned. This man sinned. Promise. He did. And his parents sinned. Lots. Promise. And so do we. But when we try to define who we are to God by whose sins have caused which consequences, whose sins are worse than others... Was this something I did or something my parents handed down to me or something the world shoved down my throat since a child and I didn't realize it, but I'm stuck in it? Even if we avoided all of that and you got rid of every like racial and bigoted and insensitive comment that was ever passed down to you from your previous generations, and even if you avoided every temptation to fall in love with money and want things that the world, even you still don't get to the glory of God. So Jesus steps into this man, who's a sinner, but his illness was not sin-caused, and who had sinful parents, but whose illness was not a punishment to them because they should have done better. He's like, I'm going to step in and do the good thing. What's the good thing you do for a blind person? You give them sight back. What's the good thing you do for an addicted person? You 
break the chain of addiction. Not addicted anymore, right? What's the good thing you do for someone who's guilty? You give them forgiveness. See, there's spiritual goodness, and Jesus gives us that make our souls good. There's bodily healing and forgiveness and wholeness. Jesus, make our bodies good. They're not good. Our bodies are broken. This world is broken. But that's something we should all just recognize. That's the reality. It's a trick question. Whose sin caused the problems? Everybody's sin caused the problem. What if an Adam and Eve didn't sin? Would we still be? Well, you would sin and I would sin. So we'd make up for them not sinning. Don't worry about it. We've got it covered. Sin is easy. And we're all guilty. So it's not a question of if we just narrowed it down to which law was broken and what the precise penalty could be. And then we pay in a time. Tomorrow we're going to sin again. It doesn't get us to goodness. I think the only prayer of a Christian is, Jesus, make me good. And I think the worst thing we can do, the worst thing we can do, is to try to become good by observing the law and by saying, what are all the things I'm doing wrong and how can I stop them? That's a very joyless faith. Instead, maybe like we had from last week, because this is a continuation, right? Last week we talked about what do you have to do versus what do you get to do? For someone caught in the grip of addiction, I, I have to get clean. What if you got to just be free? What if you got to make up your own mind instead of feeling compelled to behave or to talk certain ways? For all of us in the relationships we have, the way that we operate with God, what if it wasn't, oh, I just know what I've got to do. I just got to, got to try harder to get this done. <sighs> Jesus said, I've come to set you free. It is for freedom that you have been set free. And the point of it all is that God would get glory. I do not think that God got glory in this situation from all of the discussions about the sins that caused the problem. That's not where in the story God gets the glory. God got the glory because Jesus, in his power and his goodness, stepped in and did something beautiful. God got glory there. God got glory when the man said, I don't know how he did it, but it was Jesus. And lifted Jesus' name up and said, Jesus is who saved. God gets glory in this story, but it's from the people that are bringing the good into it. It's not the way that they thought. Give glory to God by saying that Jesus is a sinner. They had their eyes focused in the wrong place. I would like to challenge us to think, what is the way that we are going to bring God's glory into this world this week? Because if I ask us, how are you doing spiritually? We'd probably start to put ourselves, measure up against the law. Well, I didn't really read the Bible as much as I wanted to last week. And there's a couple of times that like, I responded in anger when I should have just you know, bit my tongue. And, right? How do you do? It becomes a measurement thing. But what if we just ask a different question for this upcoming week? How are you and I going to manifest some glory in this world for God this week? Who are we going to heal? Who are we going to pray for and have a prayer answered? What ways are we going to be in a conversation with one of our kids or with a neighbor and feel like, wow, that was like a great moment. That was a God moment. And then we get together next week. What if we asked ourselves, you know, where did God's glory shine through? There's no guilt in that. 
There's no shame. There's no keeping up with. There's no uh, ethic of avoidance because Christianity ultimately, ultimately is an ethic of love and action. God's glory. And that's a beautiful thing. And we can actually still be failures and weak and limited, but have these moments where God's glory shows up in us anyway, like treasuring jars of clay, because he is the one doing it. So with God's power in us, may he do the things that he wants to do, and may he get the glory so that his people are defined by these like moments of brilliance and brightness and glory and healing. That's how I want to be defined. I don't want to be known as the people that don't do those things. It's not going to help our world. It's not going to lead people to Christ. Just say, I could help you not be totally bad. Follow my Jesus. It's like, no, what if he could make us totally good? What would it be like if our bodies were totally good and our minds were totally good and our hearts were fully good, all the way good, just like him? That's what we are praying for, that he would build us into who he wants us to be for his glory. Let me say a word of prayer as we close. And then uh, Mickey Allen's closing the song. Jesus, I want to give you glory right now that you are the solution. Not a solution to avoid sin only through your cross, but a solution to live in power and peace and joy through your spirit. You actively love us every day. Help us to live in that, to embody that, to share that. For anyone who's in this room right now that is coming to you out of a sense of duty or obligation, I pray that you would help them see past that to your grace, to your desire to impart to them your goodness, to make them good. Please do convict us of our sins, Jesus, but show us your glory in how you respond to it in us. I just ask your, your help for that for all of us, for myself, including that Jesus, make us good. Only you can. It's got to be your strength, but we want it. Please make your Christians good in this world that we could show the glory of the Father. Please bring more people into your kingdom to be made good, little by little, in small ways and big ways, but to be made good by you. We cannot be good apart from you. Apart from you, there is nothing good. And so we thank you for your goodness, Jesus, and we thank you for your spirit, and pray that you would live in us in a very tangible, manifesting, kind of exciting, beautiful way that brings glory to the Father this week. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.